Hello guys, welcome back to the Mina Bites podcast. This is your host Zubair. We've changed the format a little bit. You may have noticed that we disappeared after the first two episodes. That's because we were receiving a lot of feedback uh, for these first two episodes and we decided to work on the feedback, work around the feedback and start the series again. So the format now is that we'll be interviewing different people from across the region, across the Middle East and North Africa, talking about different things, talking about their startups, how they founded them, how they are uh, trying to build these products, uh, speaking to VCs on different topics. So this is this is what uh, the format is going to look like now. Our first guest is Omar Kasim. He is the founder of uh, Jaduparu. He founded it in 2010. Jaduparu was an e-commerce uh, marketplace uh, that was eventually acquired by Noon last year before uh, selling it to Noon. Uh, Umar and his team, they raised about $8 million for uh, this company uh, in two different rounds. Both the rounds were led by Dubai-based uh, Beko Capital. And uh, Umar joined the company, Umar joined Noon after selling it to, after selling Jaruparu to them as a CTO. He worked at the company for a few weeks and then uh, left them. We talk a little bit about that in the podcast and a lot of other things, including what did he do to build an e-commerce company what were some of the challenges what did he learn along the way what is his advice for the startup founders and a few other things so yeah have a listen hi Umar thank you for joining how is it going yeah pretty good thank you how are you fine thank you so much thanks a lot so let's just go back to the days of Jaru Paru if you can Tell us a little bit of how it started and what was the idea and what were you doing before starting Jaruparu and when was it exactly? Sure. So, um, yeah, good question. So um, I uh, pretty much spent most of my life uh, growing up in, in Dubai, um, left uh, for university back in uh, 03, came back in 06. Um, my family had uh, existing uh, business out in, uh, out in Dubai as well as in a couple of other parts of Asia. Um, I joined the family business, which at that point was um, a commodities trading firm, um, and then sort of spent the next few years uh, sort of plugging away, learning, making changes. Uh, it was a small operation, so uh, it was an interesting, uh, when I look back on it and think about it now, it was an interesting learning experience. Um, 2010 rolled around, um, uh, and uh, I, well, I think it was in, actually it was in 09, I started thinking seriously about e-commerce. Um, I'm thinking about, okay, how do I take some of the existing resources that we have and start moving ourselves towards um, getting into the technology space, where, which was a, um, uh, some, something that I was passionate about. And, uh, but, I, but I needed a, I was looking at, I was looking for um, uh, spaces where we could go out and start generating revenue relatively quickly, which would sort of then say to the family that, you know, hey, we can validate this and sort of move from there. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, we, we started thinking, uh, uh, and, and essentially sort of founded the business in September 2010, um, hired a few resources, not knowing um, no, knowing some things about tech, but not knowing enough. Um, uh, internally, we had a, a person who was uh, working, working in the marketing space. Um, we asked him to throw out some uh, some UI, which uh, when we look back on it now, looks looks laughable, but uh, it was all good fun back then. And um, and yeah, six months later, um, we, we sort of conceived of a model. Uh, six months later, so March 2011, the business was launched. Um, we were we had uh, a warehouse, we had inventory, um, and we had a fleet on the ground, and we were essentially doing uh, uh, these four-hour delivery slots. So we essentially had same-day uh, delivery. So we effectively provided customers with the options of uh, delivery today, tomorrow, and the day after, um, and four-hour delivery slots. And um, and you know, for 2011 in the region, that was very early, and, uh, and we essentially wanted to build a model around providing an alternative to uh, to organized retail as such. And, and yeah, we sort of got off the ground, um, and then sort of spent the next six, seven years uh, building the business out and iterating the model, and sort of went from there. Right. So very interesting point uh, there. You had same day delivery back in 2011. Even the big mm-hmm. companies they're, they're struggling today. So. I understand when you started the business, it must have been easier because you obviously didn't have a big number of customers. So you, you know, even with a small fleet, you yeah, could I mean, have managed. But as you yeah, scaled they, it, how, how did how did it go? 
Sure. So we, I think it it was easier in some respects, but um, in harder in other respects. So you, you essentially had to we spent a lot of time uh, talking and uh, talking to customers and sort of explaining the model and 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 why we were um, you know the right alternative and and so on and so forth. And and I think the challenge at the time was uh, e-commerce was still a uh, you know obviously people who sort of experienced it outside of the region had uh, understood it, but um, I mean, still today, you've got you've got a number. You you still got you know thousands of customers who haven't experienced e-commerce yet. And uh, so back then, it, 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 the challenge was essentially, hey, come and use the come and use this new channel as such, or use our product. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, for us, it um, uh, we actually so uh, an, a relatively unknown story is that we actually started in the grocery space for for a couple of weeks. So um, a, clo a close friend of uh, a close friend of mine runs a large uh, cash and carry business and. Um, we essentially worked with them. We, we shared a warehouse, and we spent the first, if I remember right, it was the first couple of weeks, um, we, or longer in terms of prep time. But we spent the first couple of weeks essentially trying um, and attempting grocery in 2011. Clearly, it was too early. I still think, in some respects, it's a little bit early now. And uh, gave it up a couple of weeks later, and said, okay, let's let's move to products that customers actually can conceivably buy online. And, um, and the jumping-off point was was essentially electronics and and the categories around it, um, simply because there was, you know, is the rise of uh, of the smartphone, and uh, there was a ton of advertising take pla taking place, uh, customers searching for those products, and so we essentially said, okay, you know, we we can provide a channel around that, and, and the customer doesn't necessarily need to go in store. Um, and then from there, we um, I think it was by 2012 we we started uh, shipping into the region, and and in a few weeks after we we started shipping globally. We eventually ended up with customers in markets um, like Vietnam, we had customers in the States, and it was all, obviously, the, you know, the larger portion of the business um, remained uh, very much in the region, uh, but it was essentially organic discovery and customers coming out to us, and it was uh, interesting to see, um, uh, you know, a player from here be able to go out and ship to these customers um, in, a, in a relatively efficient fashion, um, and it was interesting see, to see these customers come in and discover uh, product with us when, when, when they hadn't necessarily, um, when in, in a number of these markets they had um, you know, options and, uh, and opportunities that were available to them. Um, so that that was one jumping off point. And, and from there, we, we basically um, uh, realized that at some point along the way that we weren't the best retailer, but um, we, we had a, uh, relatively speaking, we had a better understanding of, uh, of, of the technology. We, we understood the product. Um, we felt like we understood what the customer wanted from us. Um, and so we spent more and more time on the product and essentially um, got ourselves to a point where um, by uh, I'd say mid 2014, we'd started thinking about other categories and how do we sort of expand away from electronics and um, and obviously electronics being a being a category that's very competitive and has constrained margins. You're always thinking about okay, how do I how do I go and do other stuff? And and for us, the um, given the resources that we had and the constraints that that provided, we we started iterating our business towards becoming a marketplace. Um, so we spent most of um, I'd say the second half of 2014 building out a marketplace. Um, product primarily on the on on sort of on the on the seller side, and by 25 by I think it was again um, early 2015, um, January 2015 if I remember correctly, we repositioned the business, um, uh, uh, let go of our warehousing function, let go of the fleet, um, and, and uh, as a marketplace platform, and um, and by that time it started had already started signing up sellers, and uh, and we sort of went from there. Right. And before you actually moved on to a marketplace, uh, you said something interesting that you had customers coming uh, onto the platform from all across the world who were actually uh, making transactions on the platform. And you said that, you said it yourself, that they had different options available in their own markets, uh, but some of them they actually chose to buy from Jaduparu. What were some of the biggest reasons you think uh, because of which these international customers were coming onto Jaduparu? Um, so yeah, I think I, I think for us it was uh, it was discovery essentially, right? Um, there, there were categories of product that weren't. Um, uh, so I remember a bunch of customers buying um, a specific brand of uh, I think it was shaving razors, if I remember correctly, um, uh, that weren't available in the states at that time. Um, we were an easy option to access that. Um, and yeah, I mean it was it was essentially coming in discovery through search and. Um, right. I think, and, and, and essentially saying, okay, you know, yeah, this product's available, and, and we had a, I'd like to think we had an on-par experience to what was available in uh, in markets outside of the region, and uh, making it relatively easy for someone to transact. Right. Sure. And what was it like the entire, you know, the entire experience of running and managing an e-commerce company with limited resources, and you know, standing up to giants like Zook, 
uh, it, it was perhaps the only big player back then. Uh, um, challenging and, like? and yeah, challenging, very very challenging because um, um, I, th I think for uh, uh, I always like to think that that you know constraint and resources um, sort of um, uh, you know fuels you or, or provides uh, uh, provides the right opportunities to get creative. So um, we always considered ourselves to be um, you know for lack of a better term that that underdog player and and therefore um, we we would sort of position ourselves in that way and. Um, and, and go out and, and, and try to be very creative with with, with our approach and um, uh, try to do things that uh, that other people wouldn't do. So, um, you know, for example, um, merchandising for us was was very much a on-the-fly function. Um, you you come up with an idea at, at 1 p.m. And, and by 3 p.m. it would, would go out the door and, um, and and you know you'd essentially play with whatever that idea was and push it to customers and. Um, uh, when I think when I think back to so in 2011, one of our first hires was a community manager uh, to manage um, um, primarily manage our, our our Twitter feed and our Twitter community essentially. And um, uh, so again, back then there was uh, there wasn't a concept of so people didn't understand what a community manager was, and social was still um, yeah. and at least for the reason relatively new. We hadn't had hadn't seen Instagram at scale and so on and so forth. So um, it was fun and interesting. And I think um, prob probably a set of circumstances that um, uh, that have moved on and have changed. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think even with the resources that we had, there, there was a there was an opportunity to be able to compete and, uh, um, and, and, and stand out essentially. And when did you decide to uh, raise money from investors? Because you, you, you were initially bootstrapping and then uh, I'm assuming you received some funding from your own family business and then you actually went on to raise external money. Yeah, so I mean, it, it was an evolving process. We um, we were uh, initially internally funded um, and uh, luckily, I think, I think relative to sort of a pure play startup, we um, had access to funding, we had access to um, some resources and, and, and therefore um, we didn't Specifically, need to go out and, and, and raise capital to keep driving the business forward as such. Uh, but obviously, there there was, a, a, you know, like a reasonable limit to how much we could actually do. I mean, you're not talking about, uh, you know, you're not talking about tens, forget hundreds of millions, right? You're talking about, uh, you know, maybe a few million dollars that, that you can get access to, um, and 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 have to prove that it that it's being worked um, in the right way as such. Um, I, if I, um, I I forget which year it was, but um, probably relatively early, probably maybe 2013, 2014, we we'd started engaging and having conversations. And um, uh, you know, as people will know, the reason it's uh, it isn't an easy process, and and for us it was an ongoing, um, challenging process to um, uh, to prove that e-commerce was was a valid model, that there was scale there, um, um, and that it was a sector that was worth investing in. So the, the entire experience of fundraising in, in those days, especially for an e-commerce company, uh, how challenging was it? Uh, you, you said it was challenging, but how challenging? You went yeah, on to raise like four million dollars yeah, from Beko Capital. They were the only investors. Yeah, yeah. With and yeah, Beko sort of uh, led that round, and um, we. Um, uh, I, I think challenging in the sense that. Um, uh, and, and, and I mean, to some extent, that continues today. Um, uh, VCs themselves, relative to other regions, have um, uh, relatively small funds, um, making it, uh, you know, and, and making their asset allocation even more um, uh, specific than it would be in in, in in more developed regions as such. And, and so, for you to go out and, and uh, seek a slice of that of that pie um, uh, is difficult, and, and and to do it, I think, from a um, from an e-commerce perspective, which which um, in sort of a, in, in our initial form um, is very capital intensive. I think I think as we iterated and thought about our model and, and, and moved that forward, it, um, uh, we started we started thinking more more keenly about um, sort of the financial levers in our model and so on. And and, and I think one of the um, uh, logical moves towards the marketplace um, was part, was again led from a competitive standpoint as well, saying okay, if you've got a constraint in resource. What's a better model to be applying? Um, what's a model that can give you relatively more scale, but not necessarily need you to affect um, a big uh, capex cost and so on. So, um, yeah, the overall challenging. Um, and yeah, I think um, again, 
it's gotten a little bit easier today, but um, some some of those uh, sort of historical problems remain. Right, and you exited the company at a very interesting time. You know, people think that the e-commerce actually started booming. You know, in those days, yes, there there have been a lot of things, but after uh, uh, a very big number of you know consumers coming on to internet, uh, getting these devices, and e-commerce was actually taking off, and people still think that it's going to get way bigger in in next five years than where it stands today. How and why you actually decided to exit the company at that particular time? Yeah, so I think it it was a um, it, it was led by uh, by timing more than anything else. I think for us, um, uh, we'd we'd been uh, building the business for about seven years, um, and I think we we were uh, while we were continuing to to enjoy that process and continuing to um, uh, enjoy the scale that we were starting to see. Um, I I think in a relatively um, small region from a from a true addressable or from a time perspective, I think you. Um, uh, you know, I, I think there were two uh, or two or three related events that were that were taking place at that point. So um, uh, Amazon coming in and, and uh, yeah. uh, buying Souk uh, was one. Um, uh, Noon.com coming in with with um, uh, with funding from um, uh, both uh, both an Abu Dhabi uh, sovereign wealth fund as well as um, uh, as well as a PIF from Saudi. Um, uh, and and us being uh, us alongside, there were probably two or three um, players at that point playing in the general merchandise uh, play, uh, or, or playing that general merchandise category. And to me, it was it was pretty clear that to go out um, with the constraints and, and and things that we'd seen so far, um, to go out and and, and build a, a business that's going to compete um, was going to was going to be extremely challenging from there on. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, who is um, which investor is going to stand up and uh, uh, and invest um, in, in a play that is uh, going to compete against a couple of sovereign wealth funds and Amazon on the other side. So um, yeah. when the opportunity came, I was like, okay, you know, this. I, I think sometimes in, in, in life you just got to know when um, when to fold um, and when to um, and when to know that okay um, that you've hit a uh, you've hit an inflection point and uh, and the game is about to change and and I you know there there are there are some options there and, and I think it, it it made sense for us to. Um, you know, we had we had I think uh, probably four or five options if I remember right, and uh, um, and, and exiting to noon was one of them, and um, and it made sense at the time. Right, and uh, at that time you did not even consider fundraising as an option. Did you did did you actually try going to investors and try raising another round? Yeah, or sure. I mean that that was that was an option, and. Um, uh, when I when I look back today, um, uh, sort of what a little bit more than 18 months later, um, the space has shifted so significantly, and I look at some of the players that um, continued down down that process in terms of uh, uh, attempting to raise funding, and um, and frankly they've str they've struggled. And um, to me, it was uh, again it, it comes back to this question of um, you know if, if you've got if you've got a player that um, uh, or if you've got players that have uh, access to um, uh, relatively cheap um, cash, and there, and, and you know, and, and it's um, uh, and it's a fairly big pool of capital. Um, you will need to raise, uh, even, even if you even if you continue to build uh, business in a in a resource constrained manner. Um, at the end of the day, you will need to go out and raise um, relative to to the capital that's being poured into the space. You'll have to raise a significant amount of money. So, um, to me, it just you know, from what I, from everything that I'd seen, um, from, from in terms of the evolution of the VC space, in terms of um, uh, whether whether private equity was actually coming into the space, it it it, it was to some extent at that time. It, it has a little bit further now. You're you're starting to see a little bit more from um, from places like Saudi, etc. But um, it was pretty clear to me that it was going to be incredibly challenging to go out and, and, and raise the capital that was going to be required in order to remain competitive. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think we looked at a bunch of options and thought, you know, it, it makes sense to um, uh, to exit at this point and, uh, um, and 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 then sort of think about what to do next from there. I still remember the day, you know, when uh, when the announcement was made. Uh, initially, uh, it was not specified that. Jadupado has actually been acquired by noon. It, it the announcement initially was that you know it has been acquired by a regional player and uh, it's closing down. So a lot of people on Twitter were actually very disappointed because Souk, okay, it was a leading you know e-commerce player in the region, but Jadupado had 
a fan following you know people really liked uh, the platform and they they were really happy with the user experience that they were being offered so i'm sure a lot of people reached out to you and you know told you why you're doing this uh, how did you feel about you know all of that when when you actually made the announcement sure i think it was a an emotional um time uh, obviously again when you spent a number of years uh, even a good portion of your life working on something and uh, you've poured a lot of uh, Blood and blood, sweat, and tears into it. I think it is challenging, right? I, I mean, uh, um, uh, you, you um, uh, your 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 mind says, "Hey, you know, um, I'm doing this for the right reasons," and your heart says, "Hey, you know, maybe we should, uh, uh, maybe th these aren't the right reasons." But I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an emotional, challenging time when uh, when anyone goes through that process. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I still get, um, I, I still hear that feedback today, and. Uh, people's memories of the platform and uh, and it's good to hear i think um i think hopefully we we touched the nerve and uh, um and, and 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 you know i hope i hope that that leaves us in in good stead to go off and uh, build more things in the future sure. and what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned when you were building the platform and even during the exit process uh, you know selling selling it to noon <laughs> I think there are uh, there's just I mean just too many I I, um, uh, I think it's, it's or four that that you yeah could I think share it, with... it's difficult for me to sort of like pin down and say yeah this this was the one that right. stood out but uh, but I think um, you know just off the, off the top of my head and this is in no particular order as such um, I um, uh, I think it's interesting to look back and 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 realize how much you can do when um, uh, when when you don't overthink a given situation, and uh, um, you know, I I think post post data Peter, we um, uh, in terms of thinking about what to do next and the time that we spent sort of um, uh, trying different things and trying a bunch of experiments, it's um, the way we the, our approach has has changed. And and when I think back to sort of 2010, um, uh, almost from a place of being naive about the ch about the challenges, you just Sort of jump in head first and and excuse me, you just you just start going and um, and as you as you hit challenges, you sort of um, you know you, you take them one at a time and, and you just keep going and going and, and and a lot of times I think as you as you get older, as you as you get experienced or as you as, as you build up experience, those um, the things that you've learned can almost be barriers to doing the next thing and 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 I think um, uh, one of the big le big lessons has been that I think you just need to let go and. Um, and 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 you know stop analyzing and just jump in and and sometimes it, it you know I, I see it a lot in the reason where uh, you have elaborate business plans and budgets and all sorts of things and and yeah I mean I mean you gotta you you have to be rational and you you have, there has to be a thought process through what you're doing but um, uh, at the end of the day you need to do right you need to go out and and, and be doing things so I think that was um, that was one um, in terms of uh, uh, in, I guess in terms of the sort of the exit process and so on, I think um, uh, I think s some of the lessons there. Um, um, I, I think um, in terms of the um, uh, in terms of some of the lessons learned uh, w w when uh, going through an acquisition process or, or raising capital, um, uh, both Amr and myself. Um, so Amr used to run our operations piece um, as well as our people function. Um, we both left uh, noon. I think it was about three weeks. Um, uh, post-acquisition, um, I, I think one of the challenges that, that we faced and, and something that I don't see enough of in the region is that um, uh, I don't think enough diligence is done on, on potential acquirers. I don't think enough diligence takes place on uh, on, uh, on, on, on VCs uh, or investors and so on. So a lot of, I mean, diligence tends to be one way, so it's VCs, investors, or, or, or PE or whatever, maybe doing diligence on companies. But I think there, there is also a lot to be said for companies also doing, um, you know, some level or, or as much diligence as they can on who their investors are, who they're being acquired right. by. And, and unfortunately, you don't always have, you don't always have a have a choice because again, in a, in a region where resource especially capital tends to be constrained and, and the sources of capital tends to be relatively constrained. Um, I, I think the challenge is that. Um, you know, at the at the end of the day, you know, you know, taking on investment, it's it, it it's a partnership, it's a relationship, and, and some people describe it as a marriage. And um, I, th yeah. I think for us, um, you know, when I think back that we had uh, options available at that point, um, uh, we probably should have spent more time doing diligence and trying to understand, um, you know, what the path forward was. But but again, um, it was a very fluid process. It was uh, it was a time that was. 
um, uh, you know, where, where things were moving relatively quickly and so on and so forth. And um, and, and I think you know, through um, uh, whenever whenever these processes take place, wh whether it's being raised in capital or whether um, uh, you know wh whether it's an acquisition or otherwise, I think you want to be able to slow down a little bit and say, you know, is is this the right is is this the right partner for me? Is this um, uh, you know, is there a cultural fit? Is there, um, uh, you know, what, what's the path going to look like going forward and so forth? And, and again, it's not, it's, it's not that you, uh, you know, not that that should necessarily be a constraint as such, but I think it's important to know. And then beyond that, so for example, I see, um, uh, you know, when I think back, one of the other, um, uh, so I, I think through, um, through experiences um, uh, sort of before Jeropero as well as um, uh, during, um, I've always been someone that refused to sign anything without, um, uh, without most of the time completely understanding and knowing exactly what I'm signing. Um, so, for example, when we were raising capital, I think it took us six months. We were um, uh, negotiating the term sheet for a number of weeks. We negotiated our um, definitive documentation for probably a good part of three months, uh, maybe even a little bit longer simply because all of the terminology that was going in there, I had to understand it. I wanted to know. We were very, very engaged with both our lawyers as well as, um, you know, the lawyers on the other side. And, um, and and sometimes to a point where we were finding things that, you know, th that were perhaps erroneous or that we hadn't understood or that, that hadn't been discussed and so on and so forth. And, and I think there, um, I, I don't think enough of that happens in the region. I think um, people need to know what they're signing. I mean, I mean, it's great. Look, it's great to have a headline number and say, you know, I raised X amount of capital and uh -huh. so on. But you know, it, it's only it's only a number of years later that you see the true outcomes, or, or you don't actually see what the um, what has actually taken place. Um, uh, because at the end of the day, it's it, it, it's all it's all in the detail, right? It's, it's all in the documentation, and, and and a lot of times, unfortunately, founders don't understand the terms that they're signing up to until it's too late. Um, until you start raising the next round, or until you're exiting, or, and, and you realize that oh, you know, there's prefs and there's, um, uh, you know, there's ratchets and there's all sorts of things, and and, and most people don't get them, and, and I think it's important to know what you're signing up to, um, and again, another source of sort of diligence. So, um, and yeah, it takes up a lot of time. Unfortunately, it takes your takes your head away from being able to run the business, but um, uh, I think it's part and parcel of uh, of the industry that we're in. Yeah, I think that's that's a very valid point. I, I see a lot of founders, you know, just, just jumping into it for the sake of money. Uh, they're just too, you know, uh, desperate sometimes to just, you know, keep the business. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it's unfortunate, but again, it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's a function of um, there not being enough, uh, um, again, competition in, in, in terms of uh, capital and, uh, and the sources of that capital. And um, so, you know, if you've only got a couple of options, that, that you will have in terms of being able to negotiate those terms, but I think it's still important to be able to negotiate, hopefully from a from a position of strength and uh, you know knowing what you're you know outside of valuation. This is essentially so you know you you can go out and and you know I think a lot of times people don't realize or you can go out and get any valuation that you want to to an extent and um, you know but then it all comes down to what terms are you giving up, what are you giving up in order to get to that headline number essentially, and sometimes you you got to ask yourself whether it's actually worth it. Sure. Now, now this uh, this actually reminds me of another interesting point. Uh, lately on Twitter, you've been you know uh, tweeting a lot of stuff about uh, bootstrapping your way, you know, trying to build uh, products uh, on your own and you know get the revenue coming in, and then from there see if if you actually want to choose uh, the path of raising venture capital or trying to build you know something. Uh, with with uh, with your own money, the, the money that comes from business and get, gets back into it. So, what are your thoughts on you know bootstrapping versus going? Sure, I think I, I, I think there there um, there has been a tendency over the last four or five, maybe even a bit longer um, uh, years in terms of um, you know there there being these um, uh, or, or or tech in general, not just in the region but globally, there, there tends to be this or, or two distinct paths that have been identified in terms of um, you go down the bootstrapping path, and, and you essentially, um, you know, minimize your costs, try to build a product, try to um, uh, acquire some customers, and, and sort of, and, and, and go from there. And on the other side, um, there's essentially go down the VC route and, and raise capital and so on. And, and you know, um, f for me, it's it's essentially, 
Um, uh, I've always been a believer that, that there is a middle path to be taken. I, th I think a lot of times, um, I see it in the reason, I've seen it elsewhere as well, where um, uh, you know, individuals, founders are looking to raise capital um, too early, in my opinion, uh, before something right. has been validated, before they've actually built something, before um, uh, you know, before they've actually got customers, before they reach product market fit. Um, uh, again, I'm, I'm I'm not, you know, what, what I don't think we personally need to go out and raise. You know, again, I think we're in a relatively luxurious position that we don't need to go out and and, and raise um, capital today. Um, I'm I'm not necessarily advocating and saying that don't raise capital. I think it's it's more about being able to be in a position where you can opt to raise capital, you can opt not to raise capital. It's um, versus you um, going out and um, attempt. So a number of times I get um, I get DMs fairly fairly often saying, hey, you know, I want to raise capital for this, and I'll push back and say, you know, so tell me how far along you are, what have you tested, and. And, 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 you know, I've seen everything from people being still at concept to, you know, or have an idea uh, through to, you know, m maybe having spent um, uh, a few months putting together, um, you know, a very early product. So, for example, I'm, I'm not a believer in, um, not a very strong believer in, in, uh, in MVPs as such. I, th I think it's better to get to um, uh, a relatively complete product. So it doesn't need to be completely finished, but, but I think you need to be, you need to get to a point where, you know, your customers understand what you're what you're offering, what you're, you know, what where the value is, and so on and so forth. It, it look initially it will look sc scrappy and a bit silly and so on and so forth, but um, uh, as long as you're headed in the right direction, I think that's something that can that, that can and will iterate over time. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 more, you know, um, uh, raise capital when you're ready. Don't waste time trying to raise capital when when you're when when you're so early. And I think. Um, a lot of times, I, I, I find that that founders in the region naturally look towards building products specifically for the region. Um, I'm an advocate for that. You know, it's a big world out there. Um, just because you're here doesn't necessarily mean that you can't build products for sure. a number of markets, including the region. Right? It's um, uh, it, 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 at, the, at the end of the, the day, the, the region has has a certain um, has, has a certain market and a certain size of market. Um, it's a growing market, but um, uh, you know, there are certain things that you can sell sell in the region, and there are there are other products that, um, and and I think I've seen again, I've seen a number of founders pick up and 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 move to to other parts of the world simply because their products are um, will sell better in those parts in, in in those regions and in those markets. And um, and, and today, look, we, we've got um, uh, ten years ago, if we um, uh, you didn't have the tooling that was required to be able to. Um, Run uh, to high resources globally to be able to build a product in one part of the world and sell it in another part of the world efficiently and so on and so forth. And and a lot of that has changed. That you know a lot of things are uh, a lot of product, a lot of tooling is available for you to be able to do that. So right. simply just purely being looking at at the region as such. Right. Sure. Uh, one one interesting comment out there that you're you're not a believer in MVP. So what does an initial version of a digital product would look like. I mean, if, if you're sure. so like, I came across a, um, again. I'm 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 a, I'm a believer that um, uh, strong opinions weakly help. So um, my opinions do tend to do tend to change <laughs> from time to time, and um, I think it's important sure. to be able to change your mind um, uh, when you see new things in front of you. Um, so I came across an interesting term. Um, I think it was SLC. So a simple lovable product, or a simple lovable, or maybe it was SLP. I forget the exact terminology, but it was essentially. Um, uh, you know, it, it was it was advocating for um, a product that was uh, a little bit more than an MVP that essentially uh, wasn't just purely bare bones, scrappy, and something that had been put together in a couple of weeks. And I think it's um, at, at the same time, you know, if you spend two years putting a product together and not getting to market, the market has moved by the time you get to market. I think it's important That's to be able to to pick, you know, the right amount of product to show to your customer that. Um, and, and, and it's not, look, it's not always easy to be able to, uh, you know, there are products out there obviously where, where there is a level of complexity that you need to build out and get to before your customer can actually understand, use the product and, and, and validate whether it's working. But I think if you can figure out where that point is, um, where you go to a place where it's relatively complete, um, I, think, I think one potential test is to say that, you know, if I put this out there today, uh, and if I didn't constrain, if I, you know, if I didn't do anything further with it, my customers should still be able to use it. Fine, it's not going to 
um, uh, you know, um, grow and, and be the perfect fit for, for what the customer is after, but they can use it perfectly fine. It's totally usable. I don't need to do anything further with it. And, you know, for the next two or three years, they could just continue to use it without, without any interference or such. Um, uh, X support, of course. But, um, I think to me, that's, that's generally the point where, you know, the product is complete enough where you can go out and, and, you know, customers can essentially play with it. And, and that allows you to, to test, um, uh, and, and really understand, you know, have I built something that the customers want and like and so on and so forth. Uh, so a little bit, maybe a couple of notches up from an MVP or such. Right, sure. So like you said that you are an advocate for you know, building products that are not, they're not limited to the region. You can take them beyond the region and sell them perhaps anywhere in the world. So what is it that you are building these days? Um, Sure. So, um, there's yeah. a lot going on. So, if you can. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So, we. Um, um, uh, so, so, the next thing that we've done post post JP has been uh, is a business called Asanjo, and um, Asanjo is um, uh, has been iterating from from the day that we started it. So, yeah. we, we essentially, if I give you sort of a super quick background on it, we we started by looking at um, the real estate blockchain space, where we were essentially thinking about. Um, building the, the equivalent of REITs um, uh, on the blockchain, spent three or four months with that idea, realized that you know things like Ethereum and so on were um, uh, were not where we would like them to be from a um, from the ability to build uh, a, a, a commercially viable product on on, on top today. Um, uh, simply because the technology is new, um, you know they're iterating relatively quickly, and uh, building something commercial on top is. Uh, you're you're not necessarily sure whether you're going to be able to go out and whether there's going to be enough stability from a uh, from an underlying technology perspective to be able to go out and do that. So um, uh, conceptually, the idea made a lot of sense. Um, as we we threw that out, I think three or four months later, um, we spent a bunch of time again continuing in sort of in, in the blockchain vein, um, looking at, uh, at looking at crypto. We eventually started building a crypto exchange. Um, uh, I, th I think uh, we we did a bunch of uh, um, so while we were building the exchange, um, and this is again something that, that I'm a that I'm a big advocate for, if you can do something manually, um, you should do it. I mean, um, so for example, um, a, a business that always comes to mind for me is a uh, is someone called Zero Cater out uh, Zero Cater or Zero Cater if I remember. Yeah, Zero Cater out in the valley. Um, they basically um, uh, started as a um, they, they essentially realized that there was a, or the founder realized that, you know, the startups were starting to provide meals and, and, and food for their employees. And he essentially started a, effectively a catering business that would, uh, or a catering service that would cater to those, uh, or provide food to those, to those startups. And, and, and essentially right. the first product was him delivering like a bunch of menus to different, to different startups and, and menus of different restaurants and saying, look, here's my phone number, um, ring me up and, uh, I'll sort everything out for you. And, and the, Product was associated essentially at that time, um, and he would essentially input in all the all the orders, pick up the phone, call the restaurants, and then essentially have the restaurants deliver to the startup. That was the product, and it allowed him to very quickly validate whether you know did the idea make sense, is it working before you built anything. So essentially, while we were building the the or while we were attempting to build the crypto exchange, we um, essentially started a, an over-the-counter, uh, and this comes to sort of comes from some of the other experiences that, that we've had previously, as well as uh, other business lines that, that the family is in. We built an OTC or, or over-the-counter desk for, for crypto, and we essentially started with a bunch of customers, and um, and we did a fair amount of volume, and, and we made some money off it while we were building the exchange out. Again, yeah. as, as sort of prices cooled and uh, and sort of uh, crypto went through its wild swings, we decided that, okay, it looks like um, our timing is going to be off, um, and uh, larger players were... Um, uh, are likely to come into the space and, uh, you know, they, they have a bunch of different, uh, they've already got the access to customers, they understand the tech, et cetera, et cetera. So we, again, we can that, I think it was again another three or four months later. And these are all, um, great experiences, um, understanding new spaces, looking at new categories, new types of customers and so on and so forth. Um, and from there, um, Sorry we, to here. we'll, we'll go back to, you know, to the same answer, but, um, you did not have regulations in mind when you decided to drop the idea of the crypto exchange. Oh no, we did. We we again. I think it, it was so. The the two big challenges that we found, um, and I think they continue to exist today, is that, um, uh, and there's a blog post on this that um, was uh, one on one hand the regulatory environment, um, yeah. where um, actually the regulatory environment, relatively speaking, um, has has moved. Um, uh, has has moved quite quickly versus what, what we've typically experienced in the region. Um, but it, but it's sort of um, so. For example, if you if you if you look at the UAE, 
you've had guys like DMCC who introduced um, uh, a, a prop uh, trading crypto license back in December 2017, which is um, uh, fairly early. Um, you had ADGM who earlier this year, I think it was May, if I remember right, they came out with a, um, a crypto trading framework. But then in the UAE, we've unfortunately got a, a relatively challenging regulatory environment because we've got so many different free zones. You've got um, you've got a set of onshore regulators, and the onshore regulators haven't moved, but the free zone regulators have moved, and so on and so forth. So it's it's a little bit of a conf confusing regulatory environment. Um, and yeah. outside of um, outside of uh, the Bahraini Central Bank, who's um, again looked favorably on the crypto space, pretty much everyone in in the region and the wider region has, um, to some extent. Um, uh, maybe not, maybe not sort of come out and explicitly said that we're banning it, um, but they've essentially said that we're, we we don't want to play in this space just yet. Um, whether that be a Saudi or a Qatar or you know places like right. India and Pakistan and so on. So um, that was on the regulatory side, and and then on the other side, um, banking has been extremely extremely challenging. And um, you know from our perspective, um, uh, the family actually has investments um, in the banking space and uh, in at least two banking operations. So uh, we we've got a um, uh, a bunch of relationships there, and even with those relationships, um, it's been challenging to um, go out and, and, and get access to uh, so the sort of banking infrastructure that you need in order to provide the rails to allow customers to come into the crypto space. Um, so, I th so I think those two together um, basically said to us that, you know, okay, we can go out and build a product, but you know, if you're not going to be able to commercialize it quickly enough, it sort of didn't pass our didn't pass our test of. Um, being able to, uh, you know, build it in a manner where we can get to get to a relative amount of revenue um, uh, over X period. So um, we decided to park it and said, okay, this doesn't make sense anymore. Let's move yeah. on. And um, and yeah, and effectively, what's happened with um, uh, with Asanjo, we, we're in the process of um, uh, sort of restructuring some of the stuff that the family was doing here, um, as well as we, we've essentially turned. Uh, the stuff that we were doing at Asanjo, we, we we described ourselves. We are in the process of describing ourselves as a as a as a product studio essentially. So um, we we've come out and uh, we're we're building two or three ideas today. We did a bunch of stuff for um, for a few third parties in the e-commerce space. We did some work for guys like Kareem and and yeah, I mean it's been a, um, it, it it's been a super interesting 18 months. Right now at the moment, we're um, uh, um, we've, we're spending a lot of time on a product called LunaTap. Um, LunaTap is essentially, yeah. um, uh, so it's LunaTap.com. Uh, it's essentially a product that um, uh, today it's a product that sits on top of Stripe and allows you to essentially take your Stripe account on the road. So uh, typically, um, uh, most people who have a who have a payment gateway relationship tend to have a separate relationship for um, for whatever they do in the physical world and, and, and another relationship for what they do in the online world. So the idea was to essentially take the relationship that you've got with Stripe and be able to, um, uh, you know, essentially the physical world. Um, and it's been, yeah, it, it, it's been like really, really interesting so far. We've, we've got, um, I think we're almost touching a thousand customers now, um, given that we launched, what, four or five months wow. ago. That's um, been pretty good. Um, and yeah, and customers in the States, in Canada, in the UK, um, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. So not not for the reason at all. And and I think it's also starting to reflect how our business and, and, and how our team has evolved. So um, most of the team, for example, for us today is um, is located uh, remotely. We're you know we're building a, we're big advocates for building remote organization. And um, sure, we've got a few resources still in the region, but um, primarily now we're we're sort of spread out in, in in markets in North America, in places like Sri Lanka and so on as well. So um, yeah, LunaTap is one. Uh, we've got a jobs uh, product that we've uh, that we've been working on. Um, hopefully that. Um, it, it's already kind of out the door, but we've not actually spoken about it yet. So um, I'll leave that under wraps for the moment. Um, and yeah, and, and for the, right? I'm sorry, say that again. The job thing is for the region. Um, it, it, so the job product is initially for the region, but again, um, hopefully there is a there is a bigger idea there to to go out and do more with it. But um, yeah, we felt that it, the region could be a nice place to uh, to test it first. Right, right, awesome. So these are the two products that you're currently working on, LunaTap and uh, the jobs product. Yep. There are a few and more ideas there, of course, but uh, um, you know, there's also, you know, naturally we've, uh, like with anything that you do in life, that there's going to be a natural uh, sort of constraint in terms of time and bandwidth and uh, and, and team and so on. So uh, we we don't we don't want to spread ourselves too thin. So I, th I think we've got enough here at the moment.
Right. And are we going to see the jobs product coming out within this year? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, we're probably a couple of weeks away from yeah, starting to talk about it, hopefully. Right. And you mentioned something about, you know, uh, having a team all across, you know, all across the world. Uh, you have people working from Sri Lanka, North America, and, you know, some of you are based in Dubai, where, where your head office is, where your headquarters is. So what is the experience like managing a remote team, how difficult it is, or, you know, even in days of Jadu Paru, I believe you had some people working remotely for you. So yeah, we did. It's so in to you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, with with Peter, it was it was a little bit different in the sense that we had um, uh, we essentially had an office here. We had an office in Sri Lanka, so um, it, it wasn't a, it was essentially two halves of this of the same team. So for example, um, uh, we'd have some support folks here. We'd have some support folks in Sri Lanka. We'd have um, you know, someone driving, um, say, cataloging from here, we'd have, you know, the rest of the cataloging, cataloging function in Sri Lanka. So, um, it, yeah, again, similar things with engineering. Half of engineering was here, half was in Sri Lanka and so on. So, um, but but we had a physical space um, uh, on, on, on both sides. And I think um, this time around, uh, we, we thought quite deeply about the physical space and, and what that should look like. And um, uh, and we, we, we pulled the trigger and then we decided to um, uh, walk away from it um, uh, and, and, and we essentially decided that, that you know, it, it, it's, it makes much more sense for us to be able to um, uh, build a remote organization. Um, I think there are two um, uh, challenges that we find. That, I, mean, I mean, there's a bunch of challenges, but, but the two that we think about most often are, um, one is um, us having um, uh, an HQ location just, just, out, just historically in Dubai has um, actually being a constraint because um, anyone who's located here, we have to really push ourselves and try hard to um, uh, be able to uh, over-communicate and, and, and move towards more written communication because um, the, the offhand conversation that you'll have with a colleague um, will not, you know, that you have face-to-face -face with a colleague is not going to be visible to everyone else in the organization. Um, so you have, to, you have to work a little bit extra, I think, in order to to um, uh, downplay that effect, right. and I almost feel like it's it's easier when everyone is remote and there's no HQ location. And and I think today we're starting to see some great examples of that of that globally. So when you look at businesses like GitLab, who um, were probably yeah. GitHub's largest competitor, when you look at um, uh, great businesses like Envision, who um, if I if I saw the if I remember correctly, there are 700 people today, and and every single one of them is remote, which uh, which I think yeah. is incredible. Yeah. I think that the, the second challenge that we that we that we unfortunately and um, I harp on about this all the time is that um, uh, you know it's specific to to the UAE and, and much less so in, in, in the rest of the region. We still have this VoIP challenge, and um, so not being able to access uh, voice over IP and <laughs> and and yeah. VoIP around it. So uh, whether it be you know things things like things like Zoom or BlueJeans or you know sc screen sharing and Slack also. Um, some stuff works, some, some stuff definitely doesn't work, and, and unfortunately, um, you know, that adds a lot of artificial, uh, you know, sort of uh, a lot of artificial challenges to being able to run a business of, of this nature. We've seen, um, unfortunately, uh, one of the providers in Egypt, um, uh, for example, block access to Slack because they felt like yeah. you know, Slack's calling ability yeah. was going to cut into their, into their revenue, but, you know, that, that's not... I, th I think it's a very uh, challenging stance to take. So um, uh, I, I think that this is one, probably our, our, our sort of biggest challenge today in being able to get our tooling to work. And and a lot of times when you feel like the tooling isn't working, you, you just can't run the business. I mean, it's uh, it's essentially that. And without being able to access these tools, it's very challenging and very difficult to be able to uh, run a remote business. So I think that's probably our number one uh, uh, challenge today that, that we think about quite often um, and, and, and then as an aside I think the the world of work has so my thesis is that the world of work has changed um, and I think there uh, while there is rec growing recognition in uh, in other parts of the world I think in the region where we're where we haven't formally recognized um, that that a shift is taking place so um, previously you know, you'd have to go into a physical space in, o in order to be able to access everything from, um, you know, a computer uh, to a telex machine, a fax machine, or, um, you know, be able to access your colleagues and, 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 and a photocopy or whatever else you needed to access. And, and today, um, you know, pretty much all of that has, has shifted. I mean, um, you can 
open an app up and, and start working wherever you are. And, and unfortunately, in, in the region today, we're still, um, in, in a lot of our cities, we're still continuing to build out um, a more and more office space. Uh, we're seeing greater vacancy rates for, for, for those office spaces. And um, I think there, um, uh, I, I think that there, there's, there's a gap between the reality of where work is shifting to, especially um, especially work that, that is um, uh, intellectual and, and, and to a great extent service in, in nature versus um, what is actually taking place in our physical environment. So um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still holding out hope that, that you know, that, that at some point the, um, uh, you know, lightning will strike and, and then hopefully there, there becomes a recognition that, oh, hang on, stuff is changing uh, or stuff has already changed and, and that we need to change our, our approach alongside it. Um, and it's the same thing. It sort of goes hand in hand with, uh, um, you know, w with the approach that, you know, my, my gripe about about sort of our telco situation is that, you know, at the at the end of the day, if, um, you know, the more the more you try to protect um, whatever you've built previously, um, uh, you know, it, stuff will keep coming out that will continue to disrupt you. And and I think it's absolutely um, it's sort of yeah. it, it's sort of like you know. If, um, uh, I, I, I jokingly say to um, uh, to colleagues and friends that you know if if my if our electricity and water provider were turn around and say hey you know I've got a new package for you and uh, you know would you like uh, you know such and such with your with your electricity package and uh, you know you can save on this bundle and so on and you know it's it's I, I think there has to be a recognition at the end of the day that um, you know access to your to a telco network or access to the internet is a commodity and um, you know, I, th I think telcos would be much better off recognizing that, getting to an efficient cost base to get to that point, and then spending any additional capital on actually on investing in things that are that are actually going to be innovative and actually add value in the longer term versus trying to protect the current model. So, um, but anyway, we're we're sort of getting off track and off topic. No, but uh, yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, if you see all around the world. Uh... These, these companies, they've moved on. They understand that, you know, they cannot make enough money by just having subscribers and, uh, and you know, helping them make regular calls or send messages. Uh, we have this example of uh, India where, uh, what's this company called? Uh, Reliance actually started a company uh, of uh, for, mm -hmm. for mobile subscribers that has, uh, they were able to build a large subscriber base and, you know, they, they have all these things going on and now, they, all these subscribers are tied to their network and then now they are going to sell them uh, additional digital services. Even in Saudi, STC is trying to expand, you know, beyond telecom services and into sure. other things. So I think, yes, this is the natural evolution and I completely agree with you on, on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, again, sort of going back to your Reliance example of what they did with Geo, I think it's been uh, incredibly Geo, yeah, disruptive yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, yeah, and a super interesting business. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think we... Um, uh, we need to look at examples like that in the region and recognize that you know th um, things have shifted and things will continue to shift and uh, and our approach needs to be altered to um, you know to, to sort of embrace that rather than uh, rather than trying to protect against it. Sure, sure, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, you were saying something about building you know global products while staying here in the region or you know maybe even you know having remote teams and all. Now when I when I was speaking with Tajawal's uh, former CEO Mohammed Shabib, he, he had uh, an interesting comment uh, to make. He said that while you're in the region, you cannot make global companies. You have to think beyond the region, even have a, a base or something, because there are two issues here in the region. First is access to funding, and second thing is uh, is talent, access to talent. How do you see that? Because you are actually trying to do that, trying to build you know global products while you are in the region. Sure. Um, I, I think to a great extent, I would um, tend to agree with that with that mentality. I think we've um, um, in, in in the region. I think um, you know f specifically when I when, when I think about um, you know where we're from and where we're based in in terms of Dubai. I think we've we've got incredible infrastructure. We've got um, you know an incredible city that is uh, continuing to and, and a story that is continuing continuing to build itself out and um, and, and I don't think um, uh, w when I think about a wider region I think there, there are definite distinct advantages there um, I think the challenge though is that um, uh, I, I think there's a without getting too political about this I, th I think there is a 
um, uh, an underlying situation that, that remains um, uh, unaddressed simply because of how, um, and so, sometimes it's stated that simply because how new some of these countries are, um, uh, you know, I, I think the lack of um, uh, a deep um, uh, permanent population um, uh, make, makes it very challenging right. to, um, uh, so for example, um, you know, if I want to bring, uh, if I want to uh, attract an engineer to, um, you know, to our business, um, you know, firstly, I think there's a there's a lot of um, cost involved for, for bringing that that individual out to the region, um, and then I think there's um, uh, because because we don't have the right um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think infrastructure is the right word, but but I, but I think because we don't have the right um, processes in place to allow this individual to um, uh, sort of put down permanent roots in the region and then essentially um, build themselves out as at, as, as someone who's, who's permanently based in the region, um, I, I think you've, you've got this um, uh, challenging situation of um, anyone who's coming into the region is, is, is relatively often thinking about what the next step is, and that, that tends to be a move away from the region. Um, and so I think that that's, um, and, and so you've always got, um, so for example, uh, e-commerce businesses, when you look at markets like UAE and, 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 and smaller markets like Bahrain and Qatar and so on, consistently go through this challenge of having to acquire customers and not quite being able to pin down what the LTV is because, so for example in the UAE with, with a 90% expatriate population, um, you've, you've, got a, you've got a natural churn of let's say, you know, my gut feel says it's, it's say four or five years on average where you've got large portions of the population that actually churn out completely. So um, it's not that you, you know, there's no win back or anything like that, simply because they've, they've got up and they've left the region or they've, they've left that economy completely. So, um, uh, you know, imagine trying to calculate an LTV model around that, extremely difficult to do so. And similarly, it, the, the, it, so that, that, that's, a, that's sort of for an example in, in the consumer space. And, and similarly, if you think about it from a, from a resourcing perspective, um, uh, and, and being able to access the right talent, you have a similar set of constraints where um, you access talent, and then and, and the talent is um, uh, it, it is essentially moving on, um, not not just in the region, but essentially moving out of the region. So um, I think that makes it makes it difficult. Um, and yeah, and I think the, on the on, on the other side, you've got um, you've got a, you know you've got a constraint in terms of um, how much capital. I think you've, um, there's not enough competition there. There's um, not enough capital that is. Um, I mean, I mean th th there's plenty of capital available in general. There's plenty of, um, or let's say, there's a relative amount of liquidity available versus other regions, but um, not enough of it is flowing to VCs, and, and therefore not enough of it is flowing um, uh, to um, to essentially uh, technology businesses and, and, and the sector in general. And, and then I think in more recent times we've had. Um, uh, a bunch of different externalities, um, economic, political, uh, both in the region and a little bit further afield that are adding additional constraints. Um, and, and, you know, again, so for us, I think uh, while, while we, like, we, we like being based in the region, we understand the region um, well, we've known it for a number of years. I think um, to us, I, th I think I'd, we'd, I'd be in agreement, I think, to build um, a global business solely from the region today looks difficult to me and, and, and I think um, having a leg in the region, being able to access the region for, 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 um, you know, for, for its infrastructure and some of the things that it's good for um, is great, but, but yeah, I, th I think you'd, you'd probably have to build um, something that's global um, probably outside of the region, unfortunately. Right, right, right. Now towards the end, if you would like to share, you know, two, three pieces of advice to those who are trying to build, you know, digital products, who, who are just trying out and who are probably, you know, who are probably considering this as, as an option. What is it that you would like to say to them? Yeah, sort of reiterating some of the things that I was saying previously. I think, um, you know, for me, I, I, I like to keep things simple. I like doing things manually. I like doing things that are, um, uh, you know th that you can test and 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 understand and, and and so on before you actually start spending a lot of time and energy building something out. Again, it doesn't work for everything, but I think it's a um, uh, it, it generally tends to be a good starting point. So I'm a big advocate for, um, uh, for example, if you if you've got a product idea, um, grab a domain name, grab grab a name, um, uh, build a simple landing page, or or go out and, and use a service like Unbounce and. Put something together, throw some ads at it, 
see if it's working, see if you can get customers to do that first action, essentially giving you some details, showing interest in your idea um, before you go out and do anything else. And then beyond that, you know, if you can build something simple and manual that that essentially does the job, do it. I think it's the it's it's the best way to, um, and 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 that allows you to really um, get into the guts of of the idea without um, uh, thinking about the superfluous sort of you know, what do I need to build and what does the stack look like? All of that stuff can come later once the idea has been validated. So um, we like doing a lot of that ourselves. Um, we don't always do it, but um, I'm a big advocate for doing it. Um, and, and in some shape or form, we're, you know, we always like to test and see, you know, if, if stuff is going to work before um, committing a bunch of resources to to a project as such. So um, that's probably my, my number one thing that comes to mind. Um, I don't know. I can't. I don't. <laughs> I think that there's lots of bits and pieces out there, but uh, I think that's probably my my one for today. I guess. Sure. And what's your favorite startup? I'm not talking about the region because I'm I'm sure you wouldn't want to pick one. So anywhere <laughs> in the world. Um. Uh. I I think you know regardless of of uh, us having done Luna Tap today, I'm 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 a big fan of Stripe. I, yeah, Stripe I, right, I'm right. a big admirer yeah. of, their, of their product and, and just across the board. I think. Uh, um, you know, I, th I think there would have been so many different ways to execute this business, and um, yeah, just just the depth of and, and how great the the execution has been has been just incredible. And you know, if you even if you dive deep into their documentation and look at sort of the depth of um, of, of how that has been written and so on, it's, uh, it's yeah, just incredible. Even beyond sort of looking at um, the UI of the product and, and sort of their landing pages and so on and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I think if yeah, if I had to pick one today, it's probably probably be Stripe for me. Yeah, I haven't come across a founder who has used Stripe and doesn't love love them. Uh, they're, I think, favorites among all all the startups these days. And what would be one book that you would recommend every founder to read? Oh, one book. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, good question. I uh, unfortunately, so I used to be a very um, uh, avid reader when I was younger in terms of actual physical books. Um, right. uh, unfortunately, um, that's changed a lot for me. I, I, I read a lot every single day, but um, it tends to be much more on my screen and, and stuff that I stumble across um, right. uh, more than physical. I, 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 I just can't think of I'm, I'm trying to get back into it, but um, I'm probably not the best person to ask today. Maybe, maybe, sure, sure. Or, or you should probably go in and look at sort of Neville Ravikant's uh, from Angel yeah. List. You should probably go and look at his reading list. I think he's got an extensive uh, set of recommendations that are worth looking through. Right. And what would be your favorite app or digital product? Oh, again, you're putting me on the spot. Um, a good question. I, I think um, again, something that I, that I'd pick today, I'd, I'd, I'd probably pick something like um, Slack today. I think um, I think a lot of people underappreciate how um, I'm sure I think maybe it's uh, 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 sort of past its time a little bit from a new cycle perspective, but um, uh, I, I don't think we could run our business with, without without Slack essentially today. It's just uh, an incredible product and just so much potential. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I continue to be a big fan. Okay, so this is the last one. Any productivity hack that you would like to share, especially with those you know who have uh, who spend a lot of time building products and uh, you know. Um, <laughs> Um, so I'm, I've uh, I tweeted out very recently that um, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Google Docs. Yeah, I, I think yeah, if I had to actually if I had to probably pick another product, it'd probably be Google Docs for me today, specifically right. Docs. Um, I've become a um, um, so, so um, actually yeah, the other product that we use a lot is uh, we we're, we're a big um, we're a big fan of uh, of Asana as well, and we've uh, we've used Asana for a number of years from a task management perspective. It's just the right amount of Sort of depth for us today, um, and um, uh, alongside that, yeah, I think I think Google Docs for us. Um, I'm a big advocate of writing stuff down. So um, e even in meetings, whether whether it be face to face or you know a mixture of calls and face to face, we um, I like pulling up a Google Doc and and uh, let's say for example if it's it's a specification document for a particular product, we'll um, sort of live write into that document uh, in terms of the ideas that, that we're discussing at that point. Um, and I think yeah, it's it's just it's just an incredible product for me today. It's uh, you know being able to write stuff down and, and see see those ideas and get people to contribute and leave comments and and then the best part is to have full history and, and to be able to go out and review that history in case um, something changed somewhere and you're not sure what changed and so on. So 
Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say, um, you know, find the right set of tools um, is probably one. Um, for, for me today, I think that's a mixture of Slack, Asana, uh, Google Docs. There are a few others, but but I think those are the, so today I'm just looking at my browser. I've got like, you know, loads of Google Docs open at the same time. So it's different things, different ideas going on. So yeah, that's, pro right. that's probably one. Um, the other sort of from a, from a more personal perspective is, um, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's, a, it, it's about discipline and being able to, um, uh, get to know yourself better and, and, and you know, essentially um, uh, I'm, I'm an advocate for um, um, for working the right amount and, uh, you know, getting the right balance between work and life and, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, killing yourself to, to get something done is probably, it not probably, but is not going to be the most productive way. And I think it's, um, I spent a fair amount of time reading about, about that and, uh, um, so if you go off and look at, um, uh, you know, guys like Charles Darwin and, and, and lots of examples over time in terms of um, people who have produced incredible outcomes but haven't necessarily gone out and needed to work, um, you know, 18-hour days, um, seven days a week for years on end because um, that does not lead to productivity. That does not lead, lead to the right outcomes. I think it's uh, figuring out what you need to working on, uh, what you need to be working on, focus, be disciplined about it, be disciplined about your time. and and sort of go from there. Right. Thank you so much, Umar. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for joining in. Cool. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys for tuning in for this episode of Mina Bites Podcast. Please do let us know your feedback. You can reach out to us on social media, on our social pages, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, even Instagram. Or you can just reach out to me directly on my Twitter, LinkedIn, or email address, which is at minabites.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you.